we're doing our, our sermon biography series. We're starting today on Francis Schaeffer. And basically what I want to do this morning is, is just talk about a little bit of the background, uh, cultural context of the last 50 years, 60 years in Europe. Um, and Francis Schaeffer kind of began Labrie, something we're going to talk a lot about next week. Uh, but a ministry in Switzerland that was a chalet he kind of converted to almost like a youth hostel where students from around Europe would just come to stay, to work, to live kind of in a community, and to study and ask questions about the Christian faith. They were, they were skeptics, most of them. And so this is kind of what he did back in the, started it in the late 50s, and then through the 60s and 70s, this was a huge thing. And what I want to kind of try and show you is that where, uh, where Schaefer was at in Europe then, is kind of exactly where we're at uh, in the Northwest in America right now. And I think everyone kind of knows that in terms of secularization, uh, Europe is ahead of, of the United States. It's kind of a different culture that way. And so I want to kind of just show some of the background so that we can get into things that we can learn by looking at Francis Schaeffer, his life and his times. And why look at culture? Why is that a useful thing to do? And and uh, I've got a quote from G.K. Chesterton. If you've got um, your notes that got cut all in weird angles, um, if you didn't notice already, but if you've got your notes in your bulletin, uh, there's a quote from G.K. Chesterton, and Chesterton says this, The greatest illusion of all is the illusion of familiarity. The greatest illusion of all is the illusion of familiarity. And I think we, we wonder how in the world could Germans back in World War II uh, look the other way with some of the atrocities that were going on. And how could Americans uh, have allowed the slave industry to go on? And, and we look at these things and we just, we just get so confused. How could that have happened? And we do it from the benefit of being able to stand outside of that culture and look at it and critique it. And it's a lot easier to do that. But when you're in the middle of it and you're surrounded by it and you've grown up in it, it's a lot harder sometimes to see the things that maybe 20, 30, 50, or 100 years later you'd look at and it'd be patently obvious. And so it's not an excuse, but what we want to do is we don't want to be guilty of the same things. What is it right now in our culture, in America, church culture, and just the culture at large outside of the church, what is going on that we're kind of numb to that if we had the benefit of being able to stand outside of it and look back at it, we'd see clearly, it'd, it'd be set in relief, it would stand out. And that's what looking at Francis Schaeffer allows us to do, is as we look at his culture and can kind of see it objectively, we can begin to critique our own and learn some things about where we're at. So that's kind of why it's valuable to look at culture. And so I want to do two things, look at the culture outside the church, and then look at the culture inside the church. And looking at the culture outside the church, when we talk about looking at things on broad levels like this, this is a macro, not a micro, it's a macro big picture sweep of things with a lot of generalities. And, and we do that because it's helpful. You can see trends, you can pick up on things. Obviously, there's little pieces that won't always hold true when you make a generalization, uh, but that's okay, that's what we're doing. And as Kim said, I have the microphone. Uh, so in, uh, in Europe, we see a path to the culture that Schaefer was in, and the path is going to be different, but it, it arrives at the same place where we're at today. And so I want to kind of give you a little bit of the path. Schaefer was in Switzerland post-war. He went over after World War II. His, his first exposure to missions was to go over 
and to assess what was going on in Europe, um, I think it was like 46 or something like that, kind of reconstruction Europe. And then he came back. He had a passion for Europe at this point because he had a little base in Switzerland, but he traveled everywhere assessing the churches, the state of the churches in Europe, developed a passion for Europe and was sent back by the mission board living in, in Switzerland to set up children's, basically children's ministries throughout Europe. And that's kind of what he went over there for. Um, Schaefer got to, got to where he was at. He grew up not in a particularly Christian home. And his crisis kind of came in high school where he had dismissed Scripture altogether, then picked up ancient Greek philosophy and started reading it and developed some basic questions of what the world was about. You know, who are we? Where did we come from? What's life about? Things like that. And then he got to the point where he says, it's not integrous for me to dismiss the Bible. I've never even read it. And I think it's not integrous for Christians to dismiss evolution without having read evolutionists and then dismiss it. Um, But you got to read something to gain the credibility to say, I can assess it. Does that make sense? Um, otherwise, we're speaking out of ignorance. And I, and I love that Schaefer, at a young age, said, you know what? I need to dive in and actually seek to understand it before I can critique it or assess it or, or dismiss it or whatever. And so he dove in, took a year to read the Bible, and found out that the Bible answered every one of those philosophical questions that he had derived from his study of Greek philosophy. And he became a Christian. He went on to seminary. And he got caught up in a movement basically in the United States, defending the fundamentals of the, the Orthodox Christian faith against the onslet, uh, onset of liberalism, okay? So liberalism was basically saying we no longer believe the Bible to be true. We no longer believe uh, Jesus to have bodily resurrected. We no longer believe a lot of these things. Why do we still call ourselves Christians? Well, uh, it's our faith tradition, you know, and, and it kind of begins to move that way. And Schaefer was on the other side saying, no, these things are true, This is Orthodox Christianity. He got caught up in that movement. He goes over to Switzerland, and he's still kind of a part of that movement, but he begins to get disillusioned. And what he gets disillusioned with is simply this. He doesn't see any love or any grace in this fundamentalist cause. Okay, It's so focused on truth and who's right and who's wrong and where we draw our lines. And he began to realize as he was away from the American culture and over there in Europe that we'd really missed the heart of the gospel, which was a gospel of love and a gospel of grace and a gospel of compassion. And that began to challenge him. And then he came to his wife one day, and this is before he'd started Labrie. And he said, honey, uh, her name was Edith. I'm guessing maybe he said, honey. Um, I heard her tell a story, and she basically said, he came to me and he says, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to go all the way back, and I'm going to rigorously contest Scripture because at this point in my life, I need to reassess whether I really do believe that it's true, whether I I really can make this my life's cause. I, I have to go back and know that I'm on a good foundation, and, and I have to go explore that. And so he went on long walks through the Swiss Alps, and, and they had this kind of barn that he would spend rainy days in, and, and he took a long period, and this is now in, the, in like the 50s, you know, and, and Schaefer's, you know, he's, he's like a 40-year-old man, okay? And instead of just going on beating down doors, I've got the truth, I've got the truth, he was willing to step back for a second time in his life, and question, rigorously question, 
what it is he believes and go back and say, what, you know, let me let scripture speak for itself. And if it's true, it'll show itself. If it's not, I need to know. And he emerged from that convinced more than ever that he was, was spending his life, um, laboring for something that was true. And so his wife, Edith Schaefer, in this interview uh, says he came out of that time with a couplet, a new phrase that, that he started using. And he said, it's a true truth. It's a true truth. And that's what launched him into this, this Labrie thing. And they resigned from the mission board, didn't print any pamphlets, didn't ask for any money, just went into the chalet and trusted that God would bring people to them. Isn't that crazy? You're in the middle of a secular culture in Europe and you you know barely speak good French and you're in a small little village and you're just going to pray that God will send people to you. You know, it's crazy missionary. I mean, it's I love missionaries. They're crazy. Um, hey, oh, crazy people are fun. Uh, and we're not going to print any pamphlets. We're not going to ask for any money. We're just going to get on our knees and pray because this is true and God is real. And so the first book that came out of this um, at the whole le- beginning of Labrie was the book called The God Who Is There. And Schaefer's whole deal was, look, you've got to understand something. God is there. And we've got to live our life like God is there. That's the whole driving emphasis of this. And so Labrie started, and who came was, was people that had doubts and were skeptical, and they lived in a culture where truth was not valued. There was no such thing as an absolute truth. And Schaefer now, in this context, away from America, still is able to hold true to the Orthodox Christian beliefs, but do it in a way that can speak to a culture that has no concept of truth, no concept of transcendent values, no concept of objective morals or ethics. And he kind of now is in this just unique spot. And I love it. Okay. Now here's where Europe, how Europe got there. Europe got there because after World War II, you have a lot of disillusionment, the culmination, I'd say, of disillusionment with religion. America is unique in that we have separation of church and state. And for most of Europe's history, the the state would authorize a church, okay? And corruption would happen that way. You, you know, you'd, you'd basically be able to go up this road in the church to get power, money, influence, and authority because the government, political power, and church power were married to each other. And if you were a dissonant voice, if you had a different religious belief or were a part of a different religion or a different denomination even, you basically had no place at the table within this culture. And so part of your tax money would go to the church, and the church would be able to speak into your life. And so starting way back hundreds of years ago, you'd have religious wars, and you'd have people rebelling against the, the oppressive nature of the church that they were, it was kind of being forced upon them. And so they, they tried to get free of that. And you see in the French Revolution a totally different scenario than the American Revolution. In the French Revolution, they were trying to get out from all of those old structures, just not the tyranny of a king, but the tyranny of all those powers, including the church, that would oppress people. Okay, And so you get the beginning of the secularization, and they don't want anything to do with church or kind of this old order of power. They want to be free from that, enlightened from that. And so you get a disillusionment with the church, and then after World War II, the craziest thing is you have the Lutheran church in Germany that backs Nazism and kind of ends up um, somewhat used by the Nazis. 
you've got a whole lot of religious people that are now dealing with the problem of evil and going, how in the world can, can there be a God when this kind of devastation can happen, not just in World War II, but uh, 20, 30 years earlier in World War I? You know, how can there be a God? So they're disillusioned with that. Um, they're disillusioned with the, the church structures and hierarchy and the formal external um, organizational side of it. And so they're just disillusioned with church. The other thing that happens following World War II is the, the, the rise of existentialism. And now there's an interesting thing about philosophy. If you go back and look at the last um, couple thousand years of, of at least Western culture, new ideas will come in at the level of philosophy. And then you give it a generation and the philosophers begin to teach students or pupils, kind of their disciples, that will eventually get it into the arts. And when it gets into the arts, uh, whether it be painting or writing or music, then it begins to spread the culture. And so you have a lag time between philosophy coming into the academic institutions or showing up in a few dusty books and when it actually hits culture, sometimes 50-year kind of lag. The interesting thing about existentialism as a philosophy is that the French writer Jean-Paul Sartre, who really is, is one of the key names of 20th century existentialism, was not only a philosopher, but he was also an artist and a writer and would write plays and things like this. And you see almost an immediate influx of the existentialist ideas. A lot of the existentialist writers actually were novelists and things like this. And so almost instantaneously, existentialism as a, a way of seeing reality ends up in culture. And the way they sell reality was simply this. It's an eighth, uh, it was underneath Sartre and others, it was an atheistic philosophy. And basically, they were changing things, and they were saying, no matter what, man is radically free. You are radically 100% free as a unique individual person, okay? And there is nothing external to you. Um, it is only the internal stuff that's going to guide you, that's going to determine who you are, that's going to be able to help you create your set of unique values as you actualize yourself, as you become who you're supposed to be as you find that course. Now, the interesting thing is Western culture up until this point um, has, has had the Imago Dei, which is Latin um, for image of God. And so if you go to Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them in his image. It's the Imago Dei, the image of God. Now, what that means is there's an external, transcendent, objective base of value and worth for people. You are valuable. Why? Because you have the image of God in you. You, you know who you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to become as you mature and actualize. You know what that goal is, what that end is, because you're looking at God and saying, this is what it means for me to be a person is to reflect God's image. And so there was always said in philosophy that essence precedes, this, this isn't, isn't your fill in the blank, don't do this yet, because we're going to turn it around, all right? Uh, essence precedes um, existence, and I won't write the rest of the word. So the idea is your essence, your nature, you're made in the image of God is going to dictate your existence. It's going to inform who you're supposed to become. Now, what Sartre came along and did is, is he turned that around and says, no, 
Each individual person is uniquely and radically free. There is nothing out there objective or transcendent. And what Sartre says is existence precedes essence. So you're going to become who you're going to be through your own choices, through your own use of of the freedom inherent in you. And there is no one that can tell you that you're wrong because there is nothing, there is no essence that precedes your existence. Who you are, your existence is going to determine your essence. So there is no wrong. There are no boundaries. There is nothing objective or external. It's all going to arise from the internal side. Okay. And so when Schaefer comes along to minister, especially in a French speaking area, um, He's doing it to a culture that's trying to find itself. And they're every bit as lost as most of the people that I talk to in Bend, Oregon on a regular basis today. They, they, they're trying to find themselves and there's no help for that. Because everything's a blank sheet of paper. Just make something up. And so we try really hard to create something or to try this or to try that. But we won't let ourselves be influenced or informed by religion or by the image of God because we've thrown that off. And Schaefer came in and Schaefer says, no, um, the God who is there. And you bear the image of God in you. And he would take scripture and he would spend weeks with people not preaching at him. The fundamentalist kind of way of doing it. But letting them ask questions and wrestling with them about worldview. Because what really is going to make a difference is the paradigm you start with. Do you start with this paradigm that you're made in the image of God or do you begin with the paradigm that there really is nothing out there for you to conform to? It's just a blank sheet of paper. And that's the starting point. So Schaefer would help them critique worldviews and he would begin to show them that the existentialist worldview has no grounding. It has no basis. If there is no God, it doesn't matter whether you create an essence or not. <laughs> Um, and it doesn't matter whether you exist or not. We can, like the Nazis, just kill you. There's no way to even say that your life is valuable enough to keep around if there's no inherent value and inherent worth. And if there is inherent value and inherent worth, where does that come from? Where do we derive that? So Schaefer would help people really get at the rock bottom of their philosophical questions and then begin to show them that Scripture had answers. Now, here's the interesting thing. In America, we're at the same point now and we've, we've gotten here a different way. Now, in America, we've gotten here through um, pragmatism to begin with. And pragmatism started after the Civil War. You've got a group of guys from Boston, William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes. They're kind of um, friends of the older Emerson, and he was a transcendentalist and all that. But these guys go in to fight the war because there is abolitionist movement up there around Boston. They go in to fight the war. They're against slavery. Oliver Wendell Holmes gets three bullets in him by the time the war is over. But during the war, a book shows up in America, and it's Darwin's Origin of the Species that was written in 1859 in England. Shows up in America and immediately hits the intellectual strata of America, okay, the intellectual elites, and they begin to really understand that if we've evolved, then this is no longer true. Okay, we're not made in the image of God. We're just a higher evolved animal life form. 
And it really destabilizes them because now it's, we don't have, again, the external transcendent tablet of values or morals or worth um, to lean on. So how do we now move forward or progress forward? So pragmatism is the American philosophical kind of idea that came along um, because of this. Charles Saunders Pierce was the first one, friends with William James and Holmes. James, Holmes, and Dewey will become the three big names in pragmatism. And basically, the idea of pragmatism is simply this. Truth is what happens to an idea. Truth is what happens to an idea. Okay, something's not true because it mirrors reality. Truth happens to an idea because it's pragmatic. It works. It's effectual. It, it's got an economy to it. it. It goes somewhere. And the results bear it out. So here's an example. Um, 50 years ago, a guy, uh, we'll make the guy the bad guy and the, and the woman the good person. Um, so it'll ref- reflect reality. Uh, the guy says, uh, smoking's not bad for you. And the woman says, smoking is bad for you. Okay. Well, who's right? Well, we don't know. Fast forward 50 years. And now studies begin to come out that smoking is harmful to the person and to the people around it. Now, here's the thing. America is built on uh, what's called the harm principle that we get from John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism because the whole idea is the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, so harm's a big deal because that's how you adjudicate between good, not good, all that other stuff. So we have the harm principle that we've inherited from Mill, and we're saying you can do whatever the heck you want as long as it doesn't harm anybody. We don't care if you carry guns as long as it doesn't harm anybody. We don't care if you smoke as long as it doesn't harm anybody. We don't care if you look at pornography as long as you're not harming anybody. Okay? Now, once it begins to come out that it's harming people, now all of a sudden we step in and say, this thing, this idea of yours isn't good. It isn't true. And so we weed that idea out and we begin to affirm the idea that works towards the greatest good. So who was right? The guy saying smoking's not bad and the woman saying smoking's good. The woman was right. That's true. Okay? So truth has to happen to an idea. Now, but what happens when you go to something where you can't use an external harm principle and you just have two different opinions? How do you know which one's true? Well, pragmatism you can't say. You've only got your view of how you want states of affairs to be in the world. I've got my view of states of affairs of how I want things to be in the world. You can't say yours is right and mine's wrong. Does that make sense? And that presents a real problem for things where we can't really come to a harm principle type of a thing. And the interesting thing about the harm principle is why does it matter if we harm people or not? It's just an arbitrary thing that democracy has found that we want to move to the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and the harm principle kind of allows us to do that. But why is the harm principle even valid if people don't matter? I mean, can't, can't we just get another Hitler to come along and say, harm, no harm, what does it matter? This is how I'm going to go. And we can't say that he's wrong necessarily because it's an arbitrary principle that we've adopted. So here's the interesting thing that, that Oliver Wendell Holmes says. Now, Holmes becomes... Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And he's, to, to many people, the first one that sets us on this path because you've got to understand now for, for Holmes, there is no objective truth out there. So how does law determine or judge between things anymore? 
It can't really because there's nothing to appeal to. So now law just tries to work for the greatest good for the, the greatest number of people. And it doesn't matter if we begin moving the country in a direction, which means legislating things through the, the legal branch. And it doesn't make a difference if I, as a, as a judge, pick what's best because this is the way I think the world would work best, my own opinion. I have the power and the means to be able to go this direction or to make these decisions. And so within reason and within uh, the kind of the set boundaries, I've got these competing things going on. But I can't go back and say which law best accords with the essence of things because there's no essence. So listen to Holmes. Holmes says this. Man, to a great extent, men, to a great extent, believe what they want to. Um, I'm sorry, I want to read this other quote. You respect the rights of man, he wrote to a friend. I don't. I don't respect the rights of man. Except those things a given crowd will fight for, which vary from religion to the price of a glass of beer. I also would fight for some things. But instead of saying that they ought to be, I merely say, they are part of the kind of world that I like or should like. So there is no ought. So he would say to the abolitionists after the Civil War, you know what, we started this thing because there was this moral imperative, we ought to free the slaves because they're people. And after the Civil War, as he got older and he looked at um, over 600,000, close to 800,000 Americans that died because of the Civil War, and he'd really say, was it worth it? And he'd say, you know, it's distasteful to me, slavery. And so I did fight for it. I was willing to shed blood for it. But I can't say that we ought to have done that. I can only say that I preferred the type of world that would come from me fighting to end slavery. Does that make sense? So listen to Holmes as he goes on. All I mean by truth is the path I have to travel. All I mean by truth is the path I have to travel. So with pragmatism, what ends up happening is we get right back to this one again, don't we? I choose and I feel and I develop opinions of the world I want and my existence determines kind of the essence of who I am what my beliefs are, how I think the world should be run. But there's nothing that's external to that. There is no ought. Okay? And this is huge because Holmes begins to take the legal system bit by bit down this road. Dewey begins to develop the public education system down this road. Okay? Because Holmes' Holmes's big deal, and I, I think it's amazing, and he's, he's right, but he says when people believe things strongly enough, Sooner or later, they're going to come to blows over it. When people believe things strongly enough, sooner or later, they're going to come to blows over it. We see this with terrorism. People believe things so strongly, and look at what they're doing. And so, good golly, we need to just get rid of belief. Now, terrorism is a horrible thing. But we need to analyze it the way Schaefer would help people analyze a worldview and say, what kind of a religion or what kind of a worldview would lead you to do this kind of a thing? There's an inconsistency. You need to change your value system. We don't need to get rid of truth altogether. 
There's good truth and bad truth, truths that hold water, truths that don't. And Schaefer's saying we need to teach people to think so they can get rid of the bad, hold on to the good, not just get rid of truth altogether. Okay? Um, so in America, because of pragmatism, and then, you know, doing with the education system where I was going with that is the whole idea is, is the more we can get people to agree and to think alike, the less fighting we're going to have. And so the education system really does begin to move everyone. If you remember in school, it takes us all down the same road of, of trying to believe and feel and value the same things. That way there will be less fighting. Okay? The education system is a great tool to help and guide democracy within this paradigm. Um, but it gets rid of this. There is no or can be none of this. And so if you read a fascinating book that I'd loan you because I don't know if it's still in print, but by Reinhold Niebuhr called Children of Light, Children of Darkness. Niebuhr argues that democracy will always out-educate the very values that it was founded on. Democracy is founded on the inherent value of people listening to people of other sides, balancing out power, um, the idea that people can be corrupted, that we're not inherently good. Okay, democracy is built on certain values derived from religion, but because of the education system in a democracy needing to not favor one religion or one set of values over another, we reduce down to a common denominator and we will then produce a generation several generations later that don't have the same foundation which democracy arose from. And pretty soon they will no longer value what makes democracy work? It's a fascinating thing. So because of pragmatism and then because of postmodernism, and that's a big nut to crack. We won't really go into it. But postmodernism is just simply a view that came out of um, a couple things. One, uh, oh, man, we don't really don't have time to go there. Um, postmodernism deconstructs everything and says it's all relative and it's all a grab bag. And it wrongly borrows from the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics that says at a really small level, there's indeterminacy. We can't predict what something's going to be or where it's going to go or things like that. And if we can't determine things down here, and if things don't act rationally at the smallest of levels, postmodernism says, well, then everything's a grab bag. But the problem is, is as soon as you get a little bit higher, Newton's laws of physics take over and everything is uniform and everything does act according to laws. Um, and there's also problems with the quantum level of our, our instruments for measuring things are so much bigger than the things we're measuring that, that it destabilizes stuff and things like that. But we've borrowed this idea of postmodernism that we can't have answers for everything. And if we can't have answers for everything, then we really have no answers. And if we have no answers, who can say they're right? Who can say what's true? And we just kind of throw it all out the window. And so we are in Bend, Oregon, in what I would call a post-Christian culture. If you go down to the South, they still think that America's a, a Christian dog and secularism's a parasite on that dog. In Bend, Oregon, um, it's a secular culture. That's the dog in the church, if it's anything, is the parasite on the dog. And we know that. We live in this culture. It's very European. People even drink wine at lunch if you go downtown into restaurants, right? It's just, it's a weird place. And it's the same culture that Francis Schaeffer lived in. And we're not going to reach people by going up to them and saying, you're absolutely wrong. What's wrong with you, you stupid idiot? Okay? Because they're not raised in a culture where they were taught this and they understand that. And they're just choosing to do wrong. 
And we just need to snarl at them and they'll like wake up and go, oh, that's right. I need to go back to what I know. That's not where we live. And like Schaefer, we have to listen to people and have compassion and they're lost and they're living in a fog and they have nothing to guide them. And everything they try to do to create themselves is going to leave them empty because they were created for only one thing. And that's to live out this this wonderful divine spark that God's put in them, this image of God, to be a male or a female and to reflect the worth and the value of a transcendent and loving God. That's the only thing that will bring the joy and happiness they seek. And yet they're, they're going every which way looking for something. And G.K. Chesterton said an interesting thing. He said, there's only one angle at which a man may stand. And there's thousands at which he may fall. And people are lost and they're depressed and they're in a fog. And we need to help draw it out and show them that without even realizing it, they've culturally adopted some values, uh, some, some worldview assumptions that just cannot support um, a meaningful life or them pursuing anything of value or worth. And we got a d- dialogue. I went to an art show last night and um, from a guy in our church here. And I just, I was like, man... Um, I was telling my dad, I was like, I would throw away all the administration and the garbage I have to do every week, which is really beginning to bother me. And I would rather just be an outreach pastor at Antioch and just spend time asking questions and dialoguing with people and helping them understand what's going on in their life so that they can begin to see things clearly and maybe make some changes. And we're running out of time. So um, let's switch. This is the outside of church. And why is Schaefer valuable? Because Schaefer had to learn in um, Switzerland what I think we have to learn in Bend, Oregon. And I'll talk about it next week, but the whole coffeehouse idea that you maybe have heard me talk about is born from Schaefer's Labrie. I want a place like Labrie, like his chalet, where we can build relationships and dialogue with people in a safe and comfortable place for them so that a year or two or three or four later, the light switch might go off. They're not going to come into church. Some might, but the majority aren't going to come into church. Where are we going to to live in community with them and dialogue about these kinds of issues? I want to talk real briefly about culture inside church, and we're just going to talk about American culture. Now, the interesting thing is um, America being a Christian nation coming off of World War II, um, why did people go to church? We have a boom with the baby boom, the, the, the suburban boom, everything kind of a boom in American culture after World War II. And it's the cultural thing now to go to church. And people go because it's a cultural value. Okay? That's why people go to church. Okay? After the 70s, and I'd say beginning about um, 79 or 80, you see a distinct change. The children of these people um, that become kind of the hippie generation and all that say, Why? Why go to church? It's boring. Um, why? I, I don't want to go just to go. Give me a reason to go. Um, the music is distasteful to me. It's not my kind of music. It's not this, not that, it's whatever. And so they, they kind of begin to question this. And a new generation of churches kind of emerges to reach these people. And the value, the driving value of this from about 1980 to now, it's beginning to phase out, is a consumer-driven model. There's people out there that were, grew, uh, that were raised in a, a Christian home, a Christian worldview, and if we make it entertaining enough, if we become Walmart enough, if we meet their needs enough, then they'll come to us because we're, we're meeting their felt needs. 
And so you get the rise of this in 1980. The Gallup poll says the high watermark in, in the last generation or two of church attendance was in 1991. And they say it was probably due to the Gulf War, but mostly due to this whole model of church where we kind of retooled everything and we made it all about felt needs and we're going to reach out and meet your felt needs. It's a consumer-driven model. So you come to church, why? Because I'm the customer and the customer's always right. And you better have the, this kind of music. You better make me laugh. You better have all these programs to serve me because it's all about me. Um, and then I'll come to church. Now, there's a new generation of churches that's just beginning. And I would say, I would call this missional. So some of you are wearing a bracelet that says it's not about me. Okay, The consumer church made it all about you. Customers always write. It's Walmart principles. They grew big, huge churches. And you might be able to look in Ben and go, oh, I can see some of these churches. They're still there, okay? Because they, they kind of trickle on down. And you can, you can, I'm sure you can identify which churches are in this model. And they're still there and, and, and going that way. But they've made it all about the individual. And we were never supposed to be the center of anything. Does that make sense? And this new missional model says, you know what? Um, if church is going to be about anything, it better be about something outside of me because I'm going to find my life as I give away my life. That, that I have to reflect God and God is, you know, we see it through the incarnation of Christ um, is someone who is called and sent and gives and loves and sacrifices. And through that, everything comes in return. And so the missional church says it's not about me. Now, just like these things have their upsides and their downsides, cultural church, what's good about it? Potlucks, right? Um, you know, the, the supreme value is duty, but duty means you don't bounce around from church to church. Duty means you have generations growing up in the same church, right? Duty means sometimes you, you, you avoid um, silly stuff because you don't have to entertain people. They're gone in two weeks if you don't entertain them. You just give it meat and potatoes. So there's some good sides to this this model of church. The good side to this was quality. I mean, if we're going to do something, let's do it right. Okay? Um, so this brought along quality. It, it was willing to move fast and have big vision, and good things came from this. But there's also downsides. The good thing about the missional church, it's not about me. Is there potential for downsides? Yes. If we say there's three things I think we can make life about if we don't make it about ourselves, and the first one is truth. The glory of God and truth, and that's all that matters, and that's a great thing. But if we get high-centered on that and just become obsessive with this one thing, what do we lose? And this is what Schaefer learned. We lose love, and we become legalistic, and we become like the Pharisees. And we can make church about others. Um, the stuff in Nepal and the stuff in uh, Africa and helping those that they're in a pit, and if we don't put our hand down to help lift them out, they're not going to get out plain and simple. So we can become um, about others. And if we become about others and we get high centered over here, that's the social gospel. That's, that's loving. But why are we loving? We've lost the idea of the image of God. That's why we love. That's why there's a reason to go. That's why people are valuable. And if we get too high centered here and we don't have truth, we kind of lose the balancing thing there. I'd say this one down here is culture. Um, and relevance. 
you know, we're supposed to love God, we're supposed to love others, and we're supposed to be in the world, just not of the world, but we're supposed to be able to speak the language of people. Paul says, I'm all things to all people. And so you see a movement in churches, Antioch's one of them, where we value arts and aesthetics and the different kinds of gifts and talents that way. And I want to be able to go to an art um, showing at Sparrow Bakery and say, wow, this is an amazing thing, and I enjoy talking to these people and, and hearing their stories. Does that make sense? But if we get high-centered on this, we lose truth and we lose kind of the, the, the whole idea of compassion. Um, I would call this the emergent church. So if you're, following, if you're following trends in the church, I would call that the emergent church movement. Okay? Um, they, they don't talk about the Bible anymore because it's distasteful. Well, they all, all these guys in the emergent church movement went to seminary. They all know it. But they're kids aren't going to know it. And the people they're discipling aren't going to know it. And you, you, you can't just pitch this because people don't like it anymore. And so the idea is we've got to be balanced here in the middle. And I think Schaefer did that masterfully. Um, and he did it, I think, because uh, when his kids were young, on his day off, he would take them to, when they lived in the States, he would take them to the art museum in the city every single Monday. And he would take them around Europe. And so his greatest kind of masterpiece thing was a video set called How Should We Then Live? And he starts all the way back 2,000 years ago and marches through different periods of history and shows how, how ideas were shaped and influenced. And he talks about art and culture and music and theology and philosophy and weaves it all together, but always coming back to there's an objective truth, there's a true truth, and it's scripture. And Christ did die and salvation is real. And people are valuable. And we have to understand this stuff about culture if we're going to be able to speak prophetically to our culture. So Schaefer was balanced. When we talked to our staff, I said, we've got people who feel passionate about certain points on this. And that's a good thing. But that's why we're a body and we're a team. Because when you start charting us all, we end up balancing out here. This is where the the average is here. And so as a church, Antioch, we need to be here. But we might have somebody that's way over here, and this is just their DNA. We might have someone that's way over here, and this is just what fires them up. But when you put us together as a team or as a body, we become this thing in the middle. It's not about us, but it's a balance of truth and love and, and finding our role in culture to be the incarnational the incarnation of Christ. He left the church to be his body in this world doing the work that he began. And so the missional movement that we're kind of beginning now has a potential for downside. But it also can has the potential for getting back to the early church and becoming something wonderful. And I think when we begin to look at it and understand what's going on, the trends inside our church, and what ought to be distasteful to us, um, at some level, it can guide us where we need to go as a church. And we should never just get lazy and just do church, whatever comes naturally to us, whatever we've experienced growing up, and just default unthinkingly to something. We need to have like Schaefer, kind of the the moxie, the willingness, the integrity to stop and look at what's going on in front of us, to stop and evaluate what it is we believe, and to be able to move forward confidently doing the same work that we see going on in the New Testament, the early church. We don't want an Americanized church. Okay? We want a New Testament church. One of the trends that just drives me crazy today is, is the me and Jesus trend. 
everything is about me and Jesus today. Because we're so used to it being all about us. The last 20 years, half of us have grown up in this model and we're steeped in it. And we think it's all about us. And so it's me and Jesus are going to conquer the world. And that's an Americanized, individualistic, my own individual, my own radical freedom. I'll do it myself, Americanized Christianity. It's not the Judaic Christianity of the New Testament. Try and find me one place in the New Testament where Jesus is with just one other person. Have you ever thought of that? Show me a place where he's with just one other person and nobody else. And so we, we, we talk lately about it's all about me and Jesus. I don't need church. I don't need small groups. I don't need community. And it's like we're a hand. And if you just globbed off a hand, put it somewhere. So here's my hand now, bouncing around on the table. And this little hand is saying to Jesus, yo, Jesus, this is going to be great. It's going to be rad. It's me and you. It's me and Jesus. And we're going to run hard. And we're going to think deeply. And we're going to speak well. And we're going to rock the world, just me and you, Jesus. And it's like, how ridiculous is that? It's a hand. And the hand ought to say to Jesus, you know what? If you let me be a part of a good missional body, I will work well. I will serve diligently. I will give away. If you just put me with a good community, God, I want to be a part of the body of Christ serving this world. Now, obviously, we can pray to God. We can, like Hebrews says, go boldly before the throne of God. But this idea that, We can just pitch community or pitch church. There's bad church. There's bad community. Sure. Let's work for good versions of that. But the idea of throwing it all away and it's just going to be me and Jesus is not the biblical view of Christianity at all. It it bypasses the hard work because relationships are messy. It bypasses the awkwardness of saying I'm identified with a community and I don't get to control exactly how that necessarily looks. So if they do things I don't like, oh, it's embarrassing, you know, you're embarrassing me. Well, that's just life. It's part of being a community. And we can't just lop all that stuff off and throw it away and say, no, I don't need that because it's just me and Jesus. And so I love when Schaefer deals with this stuff in Labrie he has people living in community for months, working together and studying together and asking questions together, gathering firewood together. So as we go forward, let's just make a commitment as a church. We're going to think well. We're going to reason well. We're not going to reject the life of the mind. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to evaluate where we stand and check it against truth and scripture and be be noble and courageous enough to change and adapt because we don't want to just be comfortable we want to do what god would have us do um that's the commitment of this church we're not gonna always hit it perfectly um but anything less than that is just that's weird to me it's a church that i don't understand why it would exist so we're not going to do that we're running out of time um so let me go ahead and pray, and then uh, I'm going to intro a video here. Father, uh, we do just come before you now and confess that um, our culture has turned away from you. And we're in that current, and we're, we're caught up in it, and we're swept away, and we spend a lot of time uh, ignoring you and listening to voices we shouldn't be listening to and, and poor counselors into our life. 
And there's pressure on us to go and become something or be somebody or make ourselves into some kind of idyllic person according to America or culture. And it's it's foolish. Um, Father God, we confess that it's foolish. And it's like the book of Proverbs says, it's our own folly that ruins our life. Yet our heart rages against you. Father, we're making a mess of things and we blame you and we get frustrated with you. And I just pray that we would have the courage to take seriously your commands to us and that we would labor at being obedient and not accept anything less. And so, Father, give us the desire in our guts to fight hard, to chase hard after you, not to sit around and wait for an experience to happen to us. Let us not be consumers and lazy religious people. Let us be hardworking sons and daughters that know that our labor is not in vain and that when we fight to find you, we will find you. If we seek, we will find. If we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Father, let us take responsibility for some of the stupidity for my stupidity, Father. Um, Help me to just throw aside the stupid stuff and to live as you would have me live. And we pray this in Christ's name.